It's Wednesday at noon, and you know what that means. It's time for the Economic Warrior. My money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's blood. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. Well, good afternoon, everybody from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is Barry James Dyke, and I'm here with uh, my sidekick, Will Pierce, from Kittree, and uh, and my handsome uh, engineer, Phil Kleiger. That's me. Uh, that's uh, And uh, we have a, a great show. We're going to have uh, Ryan McMakin from uh, the Mises Institute. We're going to talk about how the Federal Reserve creates more inequality in this country. This is what we need is more inequality, huh? Oh, thank you so much. We're a big fan of the Mises Institute. I Believe it or not, I've been following you guys for years, and Actually, used to donate to them, but that's uh, uh, it, it's a great thing. And um, first off, uh, you know, so, you know, so you know, what caught my eyes about how the Federal Reserve creates more inequality. But could you first please tell our audience about you, your background, and what is exactly the Mises Institute? Because a lot of people just don't know, Ryan. Sure, I'm just a senior editor for the Mises Institute, so I handle all the articles you see on the front page, which are intended for regular people. We have a academic side, too, of uh, professional economists and a scholarly journal and all that stuff. But if you go to Mises.org, uh, you'll find there on the front page lots of short articles which take that more academic information and break it down in everyday ways for uh, regular readers. And uh, so uh, I make sure that we've got something up there every day that relates to what's going on right now, whether it be incomes, the central bank, uh, and other trends in the economy. Yeah. Yeah. And could you tell, uh, you know, I know the Mises Institute is founded in memory of uh, Ludwig von Mises, but could you tell uh, our audience who Ludwig von Mises was and why, it, why it's so important? Um, sure. Mises was an economist in Austria who was driven to the United States by the Nazis uh, who weren't big on free market stuff. And uh, so he settled here. And so now the so-called Austrian School of Economics is really, found, is really based in America now. Um, but it's, it, it has an old, old, long-standing tradition of, uh, of economic analysis that, uh, that really supports, but, and not on purpose, it's just as economic science, it supports freedom and free markets and, and shows very helpfully how freedom in the marketplace helps to really make people better off. Yeah, which is which is true capitalism, and uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a capitalist. I don't like co- crony capitalism, uh, Ryan. But um, but in any event, so That's I thought you'll find at Mises.org is that this is this is uncro- uncompromisingly radical free market stuff. This isn't just kind of milk toast. Uh, you know, we're we're better than the Democrats, sort of stuff. This <laughs> is, we need real freedom in markets. Yeah, and you know. One of the, the problems is is within the economy, and we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve, um, uh, Ryan. I want to hear from from you. People don't believe when I tell them that, but the, at the heart of the country, a lot of the country's problems, monetary problems, economic problems, is the Federal Reserve. Could you please tell our listeners, not from me, who owns the Federal Reserve, how it's created, and uh, why is it a problem? 
Well, the Federal Reserve essentially has always been uh, a means for helping banks cartelize their wealth. So that is to uh, to keep out competition from other sources to ensure the the ability of the banks to use uh, non-commodity money, which of course they're using paper money. Now, if they didn't regulate the economy the way they would they do, is other forms of currency would probably prop would probably pop up. Uh, with the approval and support of, of the consumer and the general population. But, that, but the existence of the central bank helps ensure that you don't get an independent financial system that comes up with, uh, with, with commodity money like gold or Bitcoin or whatever the market wants. And so the effort has always been to regimentize and control the financial system uh, to make it serve certain groups. Now, uh, I know there's debate over whether the Fed is a private organization or not, the, the fact remains that its board is appointed by the president as a highly political organization uh, that uh, is, is basically run out of New York and Washington, D.C. So, um, if, uh, <laughs> so uh, exactly what its origins were and who owns it now is actually really quite irrelevant. The fact <laughs> of the matter is this is an organization that functions with an immense amount of political leeway given it by Congress, and uh, it can use those legal powers to do a lot of things. Yeah, and, you know, the whole thing, and it's still in our minds um, uh, about the, the 2007 meltdown, Ryan, and and the Federal Reserve really, it, it bailed out the banks. It really didn't do anything for the, for the consumer. Am I correct? Uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that certainly was David Stockman's position, which I'm partial to, which yeah. was that there were really two economies. Uh, there was the Main Street economy and there was the Wall Street economy. And that the Main Street economy had not collapsed in any way, uh, but that Wall Street had collapsed, and this was built on a mountain of debt and, and paper money. And uh, in order to, to keep the financial system going and the, the powerful people who, of course, benefit from a very uh, inflationary and uh, rock and roll-in financial system as supported by uh, by D.C. and, and the New York uh, uh, financial centers, um, the Fed, of course, then engaged in a wide variety of bailouts and other efforts to prop up that specific sector of the economy. There were lots of other sectors of the economy that uh, might have benefited from lower taxes. Or, you know, why not, if, if the federal government says it needs to spread around billions of dollars, there's lots of ways to do that, um, whether or not you even think that's a good idea. But if you're going to do it, why does it have to necessarily be given to a tiny number of large uh, financial organizations that also happen to be well-connected politically? And so that's something that, that we would, of course, point out, is that this, is, this wasn't an effort to simply spread around the wealth. This was an effort to prop up very specific corporations and, financial, and, the, and the financial sector. You know, Ryan, and I, I, I mentioned in the email that I'm going to send you some of my books, and I've, uh, thank you, God, uh, I've, I've written three books and I've sold them in 32 countries. And uh, no, actually, 23 countries. I've sold 32,000 copies. So I, I know a couple of things about it. But um, I think it's so important that people know that about the Federal Reserve because it, am I, if I remember correctly, didn't Bernie Sanders and, and uh, Ron Paul uh, join together about auditing the Fed? Or, um, and I know Rand Paul is still talking about that. And, um, you know, I don't remember what Bernie's position on that uh, was. Certainly, Ron Paul was was the origin of the audit the Fed movement because, of course, this organization basically functions without any meaningful oversight. And 
uh, attempts to uh, perpetuate this myth about Fed independence and how the Fed must be totally independent and and not have any oversight over it from Congress, lest uh, it it become a political organization. Of course, only economists uh, think that the Fed is this non-political organization. Uh, it's this, <laughs> it's it's kind of this comical thing that economists think. Meanwhile, for decades, political scientists and historians have been looking at just how political the Fed is. It's well documented, but apparently uh, economists don't read any of that stuff. So they they have this little fantasy that the Fed is this non-political, non-influenced organization. Uh, but but just in their discipline, nobody else actually believes them. Yeah, it's and it's 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 actually we've had um, we've had uh, David Stockman on this show. Uh, thank you, and we've had Daniel DiMartino Booth. You know her, and she, oh sure, yeah, and uh, and uh, some other people about it. But this is and actually Nomi Prince. Have you read her new book by the way, uh, Collusion? About no, the, I've not. No, but anyway, you need to read it because how the central bank stuff um, uh, really benefits you know the elites, and it's. Uh, and the people don't understand it, but the um, but the reason why I have you on is because you wrote this great piece on how inequality is uh, increasing in the United States, and um, and it, and it really has increased dramatically um, uh, since the financial crisis. And um, uh, could you explain how the Federal Reserve helped create more inequality since two thousand seven, Ryan? Sure. Well, one of the things, of course, you always got to uh, make clear is that there's there's natural inequality, yeah. and then there's government caused inequality. Um, a lot of people who are who tend to to defend the free market um, have this knee jerk reaction. Since the left talks about inequality all the time, yeah, people who don't like the left say, "Well, you know, inequality doesn't matter. There's no point to discuss it. It's just it's natural." But it isn't all natural. Of course, there's going to be inequalities because uh, people have different skills. And as Mises pointed out, in a free economy, people who are especially good at serving the consumer, at, at delivering lots of goods at affordable prices, those people can be rewarded more than people who don't really add much value. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, those people are going to be richer. They're going yeah. to have an unequal outcome. Uh, but that's not the only source of inequality. There's many sources of inequality when the government taxes people and gives and moves money around from some groups to other groups, that can cause inequality. Regulation, of course, that punishes entrepreneurs and working people uh, in order to benefit, say, labor groups, that produces inequalities. And then what I focused on was the central bank. Central bank, of course, is a highly regulatory organization. It regulates the financial system and banks. And as research has shown, as I discussed in the article, it's done so in a way that has benefited extremely large banks, uh, to the disadvantage of small banks and small community banks and also small businesses that are riskier propositions. So the way that the regulations have been written uh, since the financial crisis is in a way that uh, you want to minimize risk in order to please the Fed regulators. And so what was the, the least risky things are to invest in already huge, uh, highly capitalized organizations, um, to have lots of money in reserves, uh, to participate in the financial system in a way that the Fed wants you to, and the way that it wants you to do that is to avoid the risk of lending to a small business that has uh, a riskier uh, chance of going bankrupt. And so I, I quote some of the the recent research here. A lot of it carried on Bloomberg. Uh, I mean, yeah. aren't like you know non-mainstream sources we're looking at that that shows that there's a real decline in uh, small businesses being able to get loans and loans going out 
to smaller organizations. So money is now being concentrated in investment banks and other parts of the the national financial sector that uh, we didn't see that as much prior to the financial crisis. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you, uh, Ryan. Just from my own research, is that and I and it's <clears throat> people ask me about the roaring market. I said, look at guys. You know, sixty percent of this roaring market has really been caused by uh, stock buybacks. You know, most of the stuff uh, in the market has really been because companies repurchasing their own shares. And so, if J.P. Morgan, right. you know, wants to lend more billions of dollars for a company to buy back the stock, they're more than willing to do it. But they really don't give much to the little guy, really, do they? That's right. It's it's become this very incestuous relationship uh, where it all stays within one sector of the economy, and uh, they're not lending outside of it nearly as much as they used to. And then this is compounded by other regulatory schemes like Dodd-Frank, which isn't specifically Fed-centric, but we can look at a decline in community banks. That's been very clear since the financial crisis as well. And so the economy does look very different from what it did, uh, say, 15, 20 years ago, and a lot of that's due to increased regulation um, that is not helping um, small banks, small businesses, agricultural loans, all those sorts of things are falling much more by the wayside. They they really are, you know. And, you know, I, we live in um, a very affluent New England area, and it, you can't – I mean, they have, we have some credit unions, but there's not, there's not that many small community banks anymore, and – you know, Ryan. About two, three weeks ago, I was out in a friend. I was out visiting a friend of mine in um, in Colorado, up and in any event, he's a builder and just he lives up in uh, Buena Vista, beautiful area. And oh, uh, yeah. and he's just a, just a really a, a great guy. I've known him for forever. And you know, he deals with a community banker and he and he builds houses and, and he you know and he and he knows his banker and. Um, and he has a great relationship, and he and you know, and he, he he's honest, he's successful, whatever. But that's that's kind of rare now. You know, you, you try to go to J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo, or whatever, get a loan. You, good luck, you know. And um, so uh, my point is, is that a lot of this, uh, the Federal Reserve has really benefited the big banks. Am I correct? Oh yes, and I think we can see that in the empirical data. Now, that, of course, the, that correlation doesn't prove causation, but of course, we have good theory. Uh, that we can fall back on to see what would happen. And we can see um, that through manipulation of interest rates, through the regulatory system, that now the system benefits people who already have capital, uh, who already have assets. And that's how the system overall, for years, this isn't necessarily a new thing, of course, and that's that's the other element, is that uh, the use of an inflationary policy, uh, financial repression where you're forcing down interest rates, um, and ensuring that uh, there's there's hefty money supply growth constantly. Um, these low interest rate schemes they're going to help people who can who have access to lots of loans, who can get lots of credit, and they punish people who just want to engage in uh, low risk sorts of investing, like buying CDs or putting money in a savings account. And that's some of the other empirical evidence we looked at here is that historically. Um, a lot of people in the middle class could build wealth by uh, buying um, some some real estate, by putting money in CDs and savings accounts. And, of yeah. course, you were, say it's like the 1980s, right, yeah. where you could collect uh, significant you – could, you could earn significant amounts of money just having money uh, in, in a savings uh, yeah. account, whereas now you're getting like half a percent, <laughs> and you're not even keeping up with inflation. And so that system means that small mom and pop uh, couples and, and operations, they now, in order to, to 
make any money and exceed inflation in terms of their investment, they have to engage in yield chasing. So they've got to look around for whatever riskier investments they can find. And what the empirical data shows is that people who have lots in, in stocks, they're doing quite well. Yeah. Owning real estate, although we hear about these markets where where home prices are going crazy and all that. The fact of the matter is for most Americans in most housing markets, housing hasn't really improved all of that much. And so if you're just a middle-income person with some real estate somewhere, that's not really building wealth for you. The only way to build wealth is to get into riskier uh, stock-type investments, and, and that's mostly higher-income people who do that sort of thing, especially people who could invest in hedge funds and so on. So those people are, are at an advantage in our low interest rate, um, low yield world, you got to chase risk. And so if you're out of that world, if you're just kind of a, a regular old small business owner minding your own business and you don't have all day to monitor the markets or buy some uh, big product from an investment bank, then, then you really have nowhere to go. And we're starting to see that in the results. So what we've learned a lot of the stuff is is that the you know they're very wealthy uh, and I've seen, I know people benefited tremendously because of this uh, policy. But um, so the Fed is as now my point is that the this data from the Minneapolis Fed I believe and then it was that girl Karen Petru whatever who did that article in Bloomberg that actually the right. Fed has admits it kind of there is more inequality and that that is kind of at the heart a lot of it is that true. Yes, I mean that was that was that's her thing. That uh, <laughs> she looks at that from a lot of different angles on her site, and she was interviewed in Bloomberg about that data, and so she was looking at household growth. And if we look at empirical studies on, and I mean this is this is just government data. Minneapolis Fed put out a a report on it, just showing that both wealth and income, unless you're in um, the the top income groups, these things have really stagnated over time, and that household wealth has never really recovered from the financial crisis. And some recent studies coming out from various uh, different feds uh, showed that you got to go back to the 1980s, really, to find house- household wealth numbers that, that are comparable to what we have now, because they went down so significantly uh, after the financial crisis. As Petru points out, uh, most wealth for a regular middle-class household is in their housing, and that has never quite recovered for most people in middle America, if, unless you're on some some stylish city on the coast. You're just not seeing a whole lot of growth there. And the, the real growth has been in stocks and, and high-risk investments, and that's not something that, that most people are, are doing. Yeah, well, you'll like my re- research, Ryan, because you'll, I show how the, all these Wall Street speculators actually do it with other people's money. It's always the name of the game. It's been doing this for centuries, but uh, w- with the 401k and, and so forth, is it's just, just skyrocketed. But um, there's a tremendous interconnection with uh, with uh, with Wall Street and um, and the Fed too. Because um, did you know that Jerome? Uh, Powell was actually a, a partner with the Carlisle Group. Did you know that at one point? Oh, they're all like that, right? They're all in. <laughs> they're all part of each other's group. You, you know, it's just yeah. So it's just it's just so. And who's been? My, my point is that the Carlisle Group and uh, Blackstone and KKR and J.P. Morgan and Goldman have all 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 of them have benefited from these. Ultra low in interest rates. Would you agree? I mean, it's kind of like they have one of their own 
uh, buddies running the show. Well, of course, since they already have huge assets, they can get loans at low rates. And um, so they have lots of access to capital, which they can then loan out the money they bring in at, at higher rates so they can make money on the arbitrage there. And they, of course, have the means then of chasing yield through a variety of it, not just national but international investments. Um, and so, yeah, the, the landscape is very, very different for these people than it is for regular Americans at, uh, at the median level. The other issue, too, is that when you're at that level, then you tend to have first access to new money created by the Fed. Exactly. When the, when, I mean, the Fed doesn't create all that. When that new money is created, it's not the Fed directly. A lot of the time it's commercial banks making loans, but especially at the level where we're talking about issuing um, new government debt, where the Fed is directly involved in open market operations, that money doesn't just go out to the general economy. It goes to certain brokerage houses. It goes to certain well-connected groups. It goes to Wall Street. And so those people, the financial sector, the well-off, they have access to new money as it's created. And this, this creates what, you know, what at Mises.org uh, we often refer to as the Canalon effect. Uh, named after an economist from the 18th century. Now, of course, we didn't invent the concept. You'll find this in many other places. But we often look at the Canelon effect um, because it shows how inflation doesn't enter the economy all evenly, that inflation happens at different stages throughout the economy, and that different groups have access to the new money at different times. And you can see how if you're a group that has access to the new money immediately, as soon as it's created, you have a chance to spend that money and use that money before prices adjust throughout the economy to reflect the, the larger money supply. Because, of course, as money supply increases, prices go up. Um, not on a one-for-one -one basis, but generally speaking. And so if you get that money first, then you can take a better advantage of it. If you're then at the lower end and you're only seeing the, the effects of that money later, and that money's coming into your pocket as it uh, comes down through the economy, well, then prices have already adjusted. So by the time you get to the quote-unquote benefits of the new money, all, you, all the prices at the grocery store have already changed. So you, you, you don't get a benefit. You're just, you're not any better off. You're paying higher prices. You got more money, yeah, but you're also paying high, higher prices for everything. So now, there's a definite difference in benefit where you are in the economy at what levels when this new money is created. So the inflationary economy only benefits certain groups. Yeah, and yeah, and this is the whole thing is that, you know, I, I tell this people to this day, and they, they, they freak when I tell about um, how banks can essentially create money out of thin air. And could you tell our, our audience what, what is known as, what is fraction reserve lending? I know what it is, but you could you explain to our audience. Well, and this is, this is why most inflation in terms of money supply comes from commercial banks, is that um, the banks, they, when they receive a deposit or an investment from somebody, they then loan out more than they've received. So, I mean, you just know that when you put money in your bank account, um, you, it's not really kept in a vault somewhere, right, that's loaned out, but you're spending it at the same time. So if you have a demand deposit, you've got a checking account, you're spending that money. You put 1000 bucks in, you can spend 1000 bucks. The thing is the bank also has that 1000 bucks on the books for them to lend out. So what you have then is more than one person spending that $1,000 um, and that's that's the fractional reserve element of it, is that they're only keeping a small fraction of, of what people are putting into the bank because they're loaning it out to multiple people at once. And so that creates a situation where money is essentially being created, uh, 
And so that, that's what gives us booms and busts uh, and also creates a situation where uh, you haven't been an inflationary economy because your money supply is, is increasing as the, the, that same $1,000 then is being spent in multiple places at once. And so that could exist even without uh, a central bank, of course, but it's, it's the central bank's job to essentially bail out banks when they run into trouble from doing that. Because you could see how the market would restrain that sort of thing. If you've got a bank that's lending out multiples of, of what it actually has in the vault, then people would be disinclined to trust that bank. Um, and so historically, you get runs on the banks and you get people who pull their money out of the bank when they suspect that the bank is being dishonest about how it's making loans and so on. The job of the central bank then is to say, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll print up whatever money is necessary to cover all of the depositors, so you don't have to worry about if your bank is, is loaning out multiples of what it actually has uh, in its possession. And this, of course, then facilitates more and more fractional reserve lending and really multiplies the problem. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, is that uh, so we need to have some honesty in the system. How, how does Mises, uh, you guys are is still a gold standard, you still believe that's the solution? Or uh, how about just plain old honesty, Ryan? I mean, uh, is, is, I think you could really have an honest money system with some type of honest weights and measure. What do you think? Well, I should be clear that we're not in favor of gold necessarily. We're in favor of market money. So whatever the market wants to use, whether it's gold, whether it's seashells, whatever, Bitcoin, um, that's all fine. Uh, but then that's a money based on something that people actually value. It's not just money that's paper unbacked by nothing. It doesn't have to be backed by gold, but certainly historically gold has proven to be quite popular uh, and probably could function quite well. Uh, in that role. Um, but as, as far as honesty goes, now, of course, I mean, a bank could make it explicit that, hey, we're going to lend out multiples of whatever money you put in the bank. And some people might be uh, willing to deal with that and willing to endure the risk if they think there will be a payoff. Um, and in some cases, there is. The, the, the question is, is that should you have a government, essentially with a government organization, then bailing out those banks uh, when when they screw up and they create these huge bubbles based on unbacked money. And so I think we would contend that, okay, if banks banks can loan out money in whatever way they want, the question is, are they going to be restrained by the market or are they going to have an implicit too-big-to-fail or bailout doctrine uh, at the central bank to ensure that that, that problem is actually much worse than it would be in a free economy? Um. You know the thing is, you know, I've read a lot of these books like Human Action and so forth, uh, Ryan. But what would you suggest? Because we have a lot of listeners around the country. Um, what would be the best uh, thing to read just to inform people? I mean, because a lot of this stuff, uh, Mises, I don't know. I my, one of my favorites was Murray Rothbard. Uh, uh, he, I don't know. He just had a just a wonderful um, uh, way to break things down in simplest terms. What do you suggest for people who want to know more about? Uh, the Mises and, and this whole banking system in the Federal Reserve? Yeah, well, if you're interested in banking uh, and I, and you're just starting out, I would definitely recommend the smaller books. Uh, yeah. There's a couple of small books that should probably be on everyone's bookshelf, and you can read them quickly. Uh, they're like under 100 pages. Uh, one is called uh, What Has Government Done to Our Money? That's by Murray Rothbard. Yeah. The other is The Case Against the Fed. And these are skinny books, so this isn't some big academic tome 
you're going to be reading. Of course, if you want to read a tome, you can read uh, Rothbard's uh, Man, Economy, and State, or he's got a book specifically on banking called The Mystery of Banking. But that's for that's you, you might as well start out with uh, what has government done to our money in the case against the Fed. Um, and he's also got a history of money and banking in the United States. So uh, yeah, there's lots of resources, and and all of the all of these are available for free uh, at Mises.org. I mean, you can buy the physical books, of course, but PDF versions of all these books are available on our site at uh, Mises.org. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, because uh, Rothbard, I know he I just he makes it, I mean, very very simple. He he has a wonderful uh, kind of way of writing it, and it makes it simple, but. Um, so the um, so, but the, but one of the things which I, I was concerned of is um, so where's the Mises? Uh, by the way, who's the new uh, ru- who runs the uh, Mises? Is Jeff? Uh, Geist? Well, our president currently is Jeff Dice. Yes. Dice, yeah. I'd like to have him on, on my interview him on my show sometime. So, what's kind of the goal of Mises uh, right now? Because obviously, it's a very important thing. Uh, you also have a, a global reach. So, what, what's the most important thing for? Uh, Mises to get out there to the public right now? Well, Mises, the Mises Institute, I should note, is not a think tank. We don't like do policy papers and attempt to influence politicians directly. Our mission has always been as a research center and as an organization that influences the public at large and academia at large. So our product, if you will, uh, is publications uh, and people and scholars and students who who create the research and the books and the articles that, that influence public opinion uh, about economics, because uh, Lord knows we badly need decent economic education uh, to understand how the banking system works, how economies work. Uh, and this isn't being done, and that's not going to be accomplished by, uh, by going to Capitol Hill and telling some politicians who don't <laughs> know the first thing about economics anyway uh, about how they should vote on something. Now, I mean, people do that, and of course, there's nothing wrong with calling your congressman and telling him to vote against a tax increase or whatever. Um, but you need, in order for that to happen, you need people who think a tax increase is bad. And well, <laughs> that's not being taught, uh, of course, in organizations for the most part. So our job is, we, we have fellows, we have faculty who teach at universities, and so we provide them with resources and, and graduate students who then themselves go out and teach their students about what good economics is. And, uh, of course, uh, we've got an uphill battle because so much of academia now is, is infected by bad economics. Uh, but uh, we've got to have somebody out there teaching good economics, and so that's mostly what we create, our people who are going to teach good economics and the resources to do so. Yeah, I would agree with you, Ryan. I, you know, I, you know, academia, I, unfortunately, has been a beneficiary of of this government largesse. And you know, I'm I'm all for education, but uh, a lot of a lot of the waste is really going to the academic system now. It's just, it's just and I, I think that would a lot of you folks in Mises would agree on that. Would you? Am I correct? Oh well, of course you're right. You're dealing with mostly government agencies when you're talking about the the education system at all levels. Even private universities receive immense amounts of federal funds, and so just having any resources, especially when it's for free, uh, available to students and faculty is just in itself extremely important because they're not going to get any of that uh, usually in a, a regular old degree program. Now, we're kind of wrapping up the end of our program, Ryan. Now, you've written a book, too. Tell us about that. And um, uh... oh, 
Call Me Cowboys. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, I wrote that before I worked for the Mises Institute. Um, that's It's basically a book on film and culture. It, it looks at uh, how Western films changed over time and that our impression of them isn't uh, quite what you think they are. It, it, strangely, they somehow got this reputation as being this, uh, this uh, pro-capitalism, uh, um, pro-freedom um, genre, but at least in the period following World War II, it wasn't really like that. It's, uh, in, these, in these Westerns from about 1945 to 65, uh, generally the hero is always a government employee. The bad guy is very often a small business owner, and usually the message is put all your, put all your trust in the sheriff or in the cavalry, and they'll solve your problems. Um, and I thought it was kind of odd to speak then of this genre as, as some sort of pro-freedom genre. Now, other periods aren't like that. Uh, if you go back to the 20s, the silent film era, there's lots of good uh, westerns that glorify the family and the private sector. And then it's the same with the so-called revisionist westerns since then. There's a lot of good westerns that, that make the government look bad and make war look bad. And um, so I, it's just really kind of debunking uh, some of these these myths that I think a lot of people adhere to about westerns. The, the good westerns actually are from the post John Wayne era or the pre John Wayne era, and uh, and I look at that and how it comes out of Victorian uh, writings and stuff from the 19th century and how literature used to be far more pro family and pro religion yeah. or specifically Christianity, and that a lot of that died out in the 40s and 50s during this period when we're supposed to think of. Westerns is all glorifying America, when in fact they don't. Well, Ryan, well, thank you so much. Let's keep in touch here because we want to get your president on. I'd like to get Ron Paul on too at some point. He's a, he's just a wonderful guy. Actually, uh, he endorsed one of my first books, and he's a, he's been, he's a great guy, and I met with him. But uh, uh, everybody loves Ron Paul. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's the man. He tells the truth, so that way he he he, uh, he you know people truth tellers don't get rewarded in this country too much. But I love Ron. Um, uh, so people can find more about you by going to Mises.org, am I correct? That's correct, M-I-S-E-S.org. God bless you, Ryan. Thank you so much. Keep fighting the good fight and pushing back the frontiers of ignorance, my man. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?